This is our uh, 144 midnight. We have 144 hours behind us. 48 to go, plus 12 is 60. We should be on the road. So, two full days left. But in all seriousness, seriousness that we come and we think that uh, you know ten days is a long time, but the day we arrive and it's kind of like holiday, isn't it? You spend at least however long packing and then getting there, and then you get there, and by the time you get settled and count the first day, you're still kind of adjusting and and all of that, and then before you know it, it's time to turn around and come back and re return from your and recover from your holiday. The theme that we chose for this retreat is certainly, um, I think, from can speak for both Ajahn Amaro uh, and myself, that it's been very rich and, and uh, um, powerful to be able to uh, share these uh, uh, themes that we that we picked, <clears throat> and in more depth. And certainly when we talked uh, last year sometime about this, that I really was very inspired and uplifted by the, uh, the, uh, the theme. And, and I said I'd heard about Hiriotapa, but I'd never really heard it as the bright protectors of the world. And that just really struck me. I said, oh, that's very interesting, and dug more deeply. And I, this is pretty profound. And give a little history to that. When I and I don't believe I said this maybe in some of the interviews or something, but this is a, a telling a little more detail, personal story. When I disrobed uh, here at Amrawati, it was actually Ajahn Sumedho and uh, Ajahn Santachito and Ajahn Kirisaro and Ajahn Pabakro about ready to become Joseph three Americans, and the only one who's still in robes is Ajahn Sumedho, Lompa Sumedho. So I don't know if I paved the way for <laughs> others to leave. <laughs> and very interesting, we all left in very different ways. And those, uh, many of you here were around uh, in those days, and uh, uh, remember, and um, in some ways, it was probably quite difficult for the community to. Uh, uh, I was the first really senior monk that had come here uh, to to leave, as far as I can recollect, and uh, who had been a, a senior teacher at one of the branch monasteries in Harnam, had followed in Ajahn Sumedho's footsteps at uh, Wat Bananachat, was the next monk in line, or the one who at least. Uh, was given the responsibility to be the, the senior monk there. And I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but it was, a, it was a very difficult and quite painful decision. And when I left, <clears throat> the, uh, it was very clear to me that uh, my practice 
as we've been talking a lot about practice and what that is, that I knew deep in my heart that the five precepts were the absolute uh, kind of standard that I had to keep. One, maybe I was embarrassed because that's what I was harping to all the lay people for 20 years to keep the five precepts. <laughs> but more uh, seriously, that I really felt that in, in, in my heart, that if I kept the five precepts as I understood them uh, uh, to the best of my ability, that I would be all right and that things would uh, not be easier. Old friend said, when I'd seen him years later, he lives here in this country, and he said to me after we kind of reconnected after many years, and he says, well, I knew you were going to suffer, he says. <laughs> what else is new, right? As a monk, we suffer. As non-monks, we suffer. As nobody at all, we suffer. So in the name of the, or the uh, thing that we have in our lives that is, in, is, is, is common is this and what um, compels us to find a way out to seek more deeply meaning and, and uh, uh, some place of uh, direction and guidance in our lives. So with that clarity in, in my mind, I really uh, you know, felt uh, felt good and uh, some and, and confident, um, not knowing to the full extent that that would be be tested. But uh, I grew up with a lot of uh, on my mother's side of the family were kind of drunken loggers. They were lumberjacks, and so uh, alcohol was very prevalent. Uh, a lot of beer drinking, carousing, many were alcoholics, didn't really understand it at that and at that time. So drinking, and I'm sure for many of us, was around in, in the family and, and done and, and uh, saw some of the uh, fallout of that, that when uh, those things were taken to extreme. Um, and I remember a great aunt that I had, she was, uh, she gave him my first beer, and I don't think I could finish it, but I don't know how, how old I was, and it was nothing other than, you know, she knew I was a curious young boy, and said, you know, everybody's drinking this beer, so well, maybe a way to kind of introduce is just, here, take one and, and try it, and of course, it's like that first cigarette that maybe some of you never, fortunately, never took, but you kind of gag and cough and say, this is horrible, why do you guys, you know, why do adults do this, or... I don't know about tea, because I didn't grow up with tea. I, grew, <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I maybe I jumped a little too quickly. Sorry, about that. please forgive me. I am a, definitely a, a tea tea lover, proper tea. Um, but I remember coffee. Uh, grew up with coffee, and, and not instant so much. They had uh, Folgers was the big brand, so ground coffee. And uh, I remember having uh, being offered some and. The first thing I, I did, of course, if I sipped this, and I wasn't instructed that it's very hot, so I take too much, it burns my tongue. So another you know, great experience into the adult world of <laughs> things that adults do and make absolutely no sense, burn your tongue, cough and spit and gag, and uh, you know this alcoholic beverage. But 
You know, there's something in the in in society, and it's been around for a very very long time of spirits, fermented drink, and alcohol. In every culture, there's some form of of uh, alcoholic beverage uh, that is uh, made from Thailand. They have uh, rice whiskey, uh, sake in Japan. I mean, I don't know all, but the list kind of goes on and on. So, alcoholic brewing has been going on for a long time. And uh, that uh, in uh, Native uh, uh, American people, the indigenous people of America, Native Americans, American Red Indian, that uh, they called it uh, fire water. And so it was a big thing to trade that in guns. So, uh, and of course, they went, they said, loco, went crazy on this, in this fire water. So it, it's not very unusual when we uh, speak about uh, uh, alcohol that there's usually some kind of uh, carousing and either laughable situations or situations that maybe aren't so laughable when people are uh, become intoxicated. I've been uh, clean and sober, and I don't mean it in the sense of uh, from a recovery point of view, but I say it that way because when I um, entered the monastery, I was very clear that I, I uh, I'm sorry, when I left, I was clear about the five precepts and, and have been ever, ever since. And of course, I didn't. The only thing I did as a monk, I actually wasn't a monk, I was a novice monk. And so we were in, spent my first range retreat up in, uh, in, in Ubon with uh, one of the branch monasteries. Uh, Stephen was there, myself, and uh, um, I'm getting a look over there. <laughs> this was, this was, and so we had to go to Bangkok to renew our visas. And when I went w went down, um, things were a lot looser in those days. Let's just say, I mean, Ajahn Sumedho, Lumpa Sumedho was just kind of Sumedho. No, we didn't. We were we all considered ourselves equal. And, and he didn't make anything. I mean, we were friends, and there was just, you know, we were kind of a band of, of ragtag brothers of Ajahn Chah, the Ajahn Chah troop, you know. And <laughs> he was our leader and fearless leader and loved to chat and talk, especially if somebody got some fresh instant coffee in. So we'd go over and he'd boil up the kettle, and we'd have black coffee with a lot of sugar and have a grand old time. But I remember this time we went to Bangkok and uh, to renew my visa. And one of the, I think it was an American novice that was kind of more fringe novice. I think he'd become a novice somewhere else, not with Ajahn Chah. But he had a couple of, um, I don't know what it's called now these days, but you know, reefers, joints, marijuana sticks, those things that you kind of puff on and get all giggly and funny. And so uh, I was quite tempted. And so I said, oh, you know, let's let's see. So I think we went around the corner. I mean, it wasn't hard, and and there were monks that smoked cigarettes, so it was fairly common for monks to smoke uh, cigarettes in a lot of the monasteries and and temples in Bangkok. Very very common. And so I remember I took a couple of uh, tokes on this uh, this thing, and I toked a bit in Vietnam. So, and the experience was really horrible. 
and and I had expected more because I'd spent I just appreciate I just spent three months on a rains retreat with uh, you know Lumpa Tomato and uh, Lumpa Liam, who some of you probably know have seen here, a wonderful, incredible uh, monk who really took the reins after Ajahn Chah passed. And so wonderful teaching, practice, it was hard, but it really was steeped in, um, you know, so kind of multiply this times, what, three, four, uh, you know, times whatever it is to get, you know, 90 days, no. so 90. Sorry? 10 times 9 is 90. <laughs> 12 times 12 is 144. I figured that one out. <laughs> so I was in a good space, but there was this curiosity, even though I'd, I'd given this up. And so I didn't, I didn't smoke very much. Remembered how to do it. And I felt... I, like, like I just poisoned my mind. And it was really a horrible feeling. And it, and it felt like, th for the first time in my life, I realized why they called it dope. <laughs> Think about that, dope, you know? Dopey, you know? And it was very, very profound, and, and that was it. I haven't you know, touched any uh, drug or drink since then, I don't remember alcohol last time. I think before I came to be, went to become a monk, I had a little sip one time. Oh, and there was a military thing that they had that I went to, but they were passing this big, it was a, I think it was a Scottish kind of thing that had full of whiskey that they passed around. So I was sitting there and wondering kind of what I was going to do, and so I wanted to be a part of the group. So when they handed it to me, I just kind of put it to my lips, you know, smelled it and tasted a little bit, but I didn't take a big swig and just passed it on. So other than that, I've been uh, um, really have not made that a part of my life. I still like the taste of beer. I'll have non-alcoholic beer in the summer because it's a nice thirst quencher, uh, but nothing alcoholic. So I'm not saying in a boastful way or or to impress you, but the uh, is the uh, my talk goes on, kind of weaving that into our our theme. And then I remember, I think it was Paul Bright or Warapunyo, uh, was at, 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 at uh, Wat Bawarn as well. And then we, we both went back, and of course, we were feeling horribly guilty. I'm not sure what he had done. We both had done something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we come dragging our robes back and alms bowl between our legs or whatever <laughs> the analogy is for the... The, the dog with his tail between his legs, and uh, which I think is quite something to say. Well, we knew we had to kind of spill the beans, you know, what had what had happened, and I don't remember, so I'm not speaking for. But maybe he had a you know a sweet in the evening or something. So we go in and you know we bow, and I don't know if he started or I started, and <laughs> but you know he says oh he says no pa no I. <laughs> I had a little sweetie in the evening. Nah, you know that's it. that was a, that was how his he would scold you, you know, and just like that. I mean, this long sound and then and no, oh, boy, I I smoked a little bit of marijuana. Nah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh my God, you know, you couldn't. There was nowhere to go, you know. It was a concrete floor you were on, and 
There's no way you could open the, you know, open cracks in it and kind of hide. But it was, it was always with great love. I mean, sometimes it didn't feel like great love, <laughs> but those of us that did get scolded. But there was a, with the, the, that acknowledgement and, and uh, telling him that uh, things are very magnified in monastic life, the smallest things that are a transgression, and even though they're small and they're not earth-shattering and you don't have to leave the robe, like uh, Denerma was talking about the other day with the uh, serious offenses, still the, the, uh, one's heart and consciousness holds a very high standard, and so we, we live a very high standard and of impeccability. And so the slightest offense or transgression is, is, can be very uh, disturbing. And there's a reason for that. Uh, and, and so that discipline really holds up why we come to uh, bow to the monastic community and, and uplift them and uh, worthy of gifts, of offerings, of hospitality, uh, worthy of respect, uh, the chanting that we, we do because uh, they are the kind of the living embodiment of the highest uh, kind of standard that uh, a community can have in, in living in the world. But equally important is, is our path as lay people, as those are uh, devotees in the, in the world. And so I think through my life of, uh, you know, when I was a soldier, and uh, there was a point then in Vietnam that I really not, didn't like alcohol and had discovered, I had discovered in high, just, just out of high school, uh, some friends had, uh, turned me on, I don't know if they use that term anymore, but anyway, <laughs> to marijuana. And I really liked it. I mean, it was really a nice, pleasant thing, different from alcohol and, and that. But um, because of the military, I, I always had this, it kept me in check. I couldn't kind of go overboard with these things. And I certainly found that uh, I preferred that to, to drinking because I, I shared when talking about the first precept that when I drank, I always found that most of the violent situations in my life, other than an, an intimidation, say, by the peer group that you're expected to stand up for yourself or fight. I remember I was pushed into a, a, a fight with a, uh, a young black man and uh, uh, that we, we only had a few in our, our high school. It was very, so very segregated. And uh, so I was pushed into, I was actually, I remember this one kid that was younger than I was and pushed me in to this black guy. And then, and then now, is that, was I, now I'm thinking who that is. <laughs> anyway, he pushed me, we're walking on the street. And so he's, he's a little guy, of course, and I'm the big guy. So he's kind of on my side. And here's this, these, these black, two black guys passing us that were at, at the school. So he kind of shoves me into the guy. So all of a sudden, you know, I'm, it's, it's my kind of fight. And it was a big deal, uh, certainly when I was in high school, to kind of, you know, you walk down the hall with a certain swagger and you didn't move out of anybody's way and, you know, don't wet mess with me. That was the conditioning I had, very kind of primal, basic um, Jurassic Park. <laughs> and... Uh, um, and, and so even if I didn't feel tough, I had to act tough because I felt that's what I was supposed to do. But other than that, 
I really shied away from that. I was afraid not only of violence, but pain. I didn't want to get hurt. I mean, you know, you start swinging at each other and, you know, get hit and break your nose. I mean, nothing attracted me about that. So the, the, the alcohol in my life always led to something that wasn't very skillful uh, and, and to things that were um, unpleasant to have uh, remorse about. And it always seemed to be about uh, boasting. Like when in high school, not of drinking age yet, at least when I grew up, was, was, was 21. And um, everything was like, well, how drunk you got over the weekend. And then, you know, other things that you might have done usually had something to do with chasing the opposite sex. And they, uh, the, this, this posturing with, uh, you know, how drunk you were and uh, just a lot of foolishness. But all of us have outgrown at least that period of our of our lives. So when we come to the uh, these precepts, and now the the uh, the the fifth of the of the five, it's a very interesting one, and I've been really amazed at how much I've learned in this short time about the precepts, uh, being with with Ajahn Amaro and his uh, depth of investigation of words and the precepts and stuff. It's been, it's been very um, just uplifting to learn more deeply about the, the precepts. And so back to the practice of the precepts when I left monastic life, I was very clear about that. But I would meet people and people were doing retreats have been popular for a long time, retreats with Jack Cornfield, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, and you know the American teachers. The list kind of goes on and on. And I wasn't really interested in studying with any of these teachers or doing retreats. Um, I felt that I had a good foundation. But people, when they would meet me, especially early on, they said, "Oh, you were a monk for all these years." And I said, "Well, what is your practice?" And I was extremely intimidated. Because I knew what they were asking was like how much time I spent on the cushion. And quite frankly, I didn't spend any or very little. And, and so because I got intimidated and didn't have a confidence of what I was doing and realized the depth of that commitment and how that was my practice, um, I would try to, and I wouldn't lie, but, you know, well, you know, I do some chanting and I enjoy and I, and I would do retreats periodically, but I wouldn't say, well, I actually, I keep the five precepts. You know, that just didn't seem like a very sexy thing to say. That, you know, an ex-monk sat with Ajahn Chah, get up at four, get on the cushion by 4.15, first, second, third jhana, take a little break, have a cup of tea, come back. <laughs> Fourth, survey the world, see that there is people but little dust in their eyes. Wow, you know, like I mean, that's that's what I think people were expecting, and it was it was it was just a further reinforcement of when I was a monk. I always felt that I was I was uh, more was expected of me than I could actually produce, because you know you 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 come you come here you've been around monastics and stuff. So the, we have a high expectation, don't we? And we don't allow these wonderful people to be humans now. There is a certain expectation, and they do live a different standard, and so it's not excusing misbehaving 
monks or nuns or anything like that. But I think our minds, we kind of like want them. I think this is also very prevalent in Asia to like be so holy and pure that basically just by being near, you know, can't kind of rub up against them. Maybe that's not appropriate. But this, just by being in the presence of these smiling, wonderful beings, that somehow, you know, kind of osmosis or whatever, yes, will, you know, rub off, you know, and, and you can bathe in this kind of purity, oozing, just oozing. I mean, from the Buddha itself to the monks and nuns, and just, you know, just drink it in. And, and so when you're on that side, so Joseph now, Ajahn Pabakaro, um, it could be quite intimidating as well. So I always, I didn't want to say, you know, all that was going on in my mind to like people, but basically tried to say, well, you know, we're human like anybody else, and we have our faults and, and things, but it's almost like people find it hard to believe because I think we want, you know, we want to elevate, we want something that, to uh, uplift our hearts, and that's, uh, that's understandable. But it can be, you know, somewhat intimidating. So, you know, that was certainly a part of my, and it wasn't, you know, a, a really a big part of me uh, disrobing, which is a, you know, much deeper conversation. And hopefully I'll be able to, you know, put that together where it will be in a book form sometime, someday. Um, but the, the, the responsibility that you and I have then in supporting this, this tradition is these, the, the precepts. And if you really look at it, and I was reading a little bit of Sutta today, but really the five, the, 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 the monk and nuns, the bhikkhu bhikkhuni, the, all of the discipline that we have, is really a, a further refinement of the five precepts or even the four precepts. And I could be wrong, but I think if every, like Ajahnamara was saying last night, that 10,000 at breaking down of the 227 uh, Sikapadas of the Padimoka, but then in the further breakdown of that, something like 10,000. And, uh, you know, only Ajahnamara would come up with this, but then he, you know, kind of further broke down, well, about 75% are to do with speech. And that's, that's pretty incredible to think about that as well. Uh, but they're all to do with, whether that's correct or not, they're all to do with, with body and speech, aren't they? Everything is about um, how you and I manifest ourselves uh, by the door of, of speech, of talking, and what we do with this, this body, how it interacts with other bodies in the, in the world. <laughs> And it's the same for, uh, for nuns and monks, for monastics, that it's all about relating and relating with, with uh, themselves, uh, relating with uh, you know, brother monks, with sister nuns, with the laity. So it's all about a, a, a relationship that is very refined and makes for beautiful behavior so that we do uh, feel, that, uh, feel that inspiration because of the, of the standard of discipline and, and that, uh, that it, they live. So it can kind of feel maybe a little bit of a letdown that, well, geez, we only got five precepts, you know, what a bummer. But it's enough. Certainly my experience is enough. So the intimidation then that I, I experienced, it took a very, very wise and, and uh, none that I have uh, a lot of respect for, I have respect for all of them. And this is one who, who uh, her name is Ayamedanandi. 
and she was here for a number of years in the early years, and she'd, but she was, she was, uh, had ordained in Burma, I think, with uh, Upandita, was her first teacher, spent a lot of time with us here, and then had a lot of travels, I think lived in uh, New Zealand for quite some time, and, uh, you know, had the good fortune to, to really uh, go, strike out uh, as a, as a woman in robes and have some very rich and deep experiences and yet she has incredible respect and, and is very closely uh, associated with uh, the community here and and, uh, and she lives very near uh, Ajahn Lumpal Viridambo in, uh, in Canada. So one year she came, this is probably about three years ago, and her and uh, a monk named Ajahn Punadambo, who lives up in Thunder Bay in Canada, kind of very isolated, pretty much on his own, and uh, they've uh, taught together this retreat. And when I went with uh, my wife Catherine to, to pick her up, we brought, they spent the night in Boston. And so I had a little time to exchange with her, and I was kind of saying to her about you know, practice and that uh, uh, I was still you know, somewhat intimidated by this idea of what my practice was and you know, kind of, you know, I keep the five precepts. I made that very clear, and she just stopped. She says, Joseph. And she's, that is your practice. It's like, really just hit me full on that that isn't any small, a small thing, you know, to make that the standard of my life. And so, and it's not to say, don't, you know, I just was keeping the five precepts and, you know, going hog wild and not doing retreats or making effort to sit or do chanting. It certainly has been a, a part of my life. But in that daily discipline and, you know, kind of what people might expect, um, that uh, is, was not a part. And so it, it allowed me to really more openly embrace that. And then the last uh, number of years, uh, this is this, the third, but it's been, it was 2012 that we taught the first ret retreat together, the weekend on uh, mindful aging, then the uh, death and dying uh, seven day, and then 2014, uh, walking the Buddhist path, the fruits of effort, two years ago, and then now this retreat this year. And so it just feels like the, the, my life and, and what I've been so blessed to be a part of, and then post-monastic, every time comes at a little higher level, if you will, of my own personal commitment and understanding and depth and what I feel I'm blessed to be able to share with, with other people. And in this context is, is incredibly uh, just a, a, a great honor, uh, to say the least. And you know, when I get tired still, I go, oh, what are you doing up there? You know, you phony, you know, you're just a, you know, an ex-monk, nobody. And you know, I can still have those kind of thoughts. And then I, I shut up, Joseph. <laughs> you're here for a reason. Oh, OK, thank you, thank you. And, and that happens for all of us, doesn't it? We can kind of dip low and like, well, I'm not really getting anywhere. Um, yeah, they talk about the precepts, and I think I do, but yeah, I don't know if that's really that big a deal, and my, my meditation is horrible, um, and it just seems to get more horrible, although some people have said in the interviews that it's gotten better, and I was very happy to hear that. But to say the things that we all struggle with are so human, they're so much a part of, of who we are. 
So in these precepts that I, I realize more and more that they are the, the depth of them. So as we've presented and talked about each one individually in the Hiriotapa, we can uh, con consider the, uh, the, the Hiriotapa, we've uh, made an attempt to not define it as much as speak about it, what it is. So for me, sitting here this evening, it's like this, this inherent uh, intelligence that is built into our systems. Like I said, when I was a child, I, didn't, I was turned away from wanting to hurt people to be engaged in any kind of harm, except when pushed or in, in, a, in a stuporous uh, state where uh, that does cloud one's judgment. And so that consciousness, that intelligence, and then the, the results, uh, the resultant uh, consequential thinking, as, as I've called it, uh, and, and is a term that works well with, with inmates, that we have this, this inherent um, little uh, gem within us that goes part and parcel with these precepts and why they make sense. But whatever level, however you approach them, the, the beauty is for you and I to discover for ourselves. And so whether that may, whether they make sense or or not, and something Ajahn brought up was about the uh, pagati uh, sila, and I'd never heard this, and so pagati is, and I looked it up today, and he said that the first four considered pagati sila, which means the natural sila, and um, there was one other word I, I'm not recalling it right now. They trans, but I like the word natural. Meaning that that it's it's natural, almost organic, if you will, for a human being. And what makes us human and elevates us from just behaving like animals are, in fact, these precepts that we don't harm, engage in harming uh, other living beings, uh, that we respect other people's possessions, um, and uh, so much that take us off in another direction is like covetousness or uh, jealousy or. Um, revenge or you know these things that can cause us to maybe want to have oh I instead of like celebrating it's the opposite of mudita mudita is really a celebration a rejoicing in other people's goodness isn't it and so the opposite of that is to covet to want and say well you know I should have that I deserve that you know what do they do to deserve it or some people just do it out of spite I don't know if they have it in this country I imagine they do they have a thing in the States called keen on a car, I've never been keyed, but you know, a nice car. They'll take a, a, a house key or another key and just go down the side of a beautiful car, just, you know, scratch it. And it's 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 not even it's totally impersonal, but it's you know it's a, an expression of somebody either being jealous or just you know oh, you know, you rich person or you know it doesn't even have to be a nice fancy car. It might be one just nicer than the car that they have and. So these vindictive, horrible things that we can do because of lack of clarity and, and so on. And of course, the third precept that I, I went in depth the other night uh, and how we behave uh, and uh, responsibly to our relationship with our fellow human beings and you know, respecting uh, other people's space and uh, um, sexuality and uh, consenting adults. I mean, the things that, that we really all know in our hearts. 
and then last night about uh, the big one about speech, which is a uh, is an absolute you know fascinating. I find that because so much of how we get ourselves in trouble can be through speech. So this last one, Surah Mirayatmajapamadatana, uh, abstaining or uh, undertake the precept to uh, refrain from uh, taking drug and drink, which lead to heedlessness. And it was just today I was talking with Ajahn about something that I'm very familiar with in Thai, and that, that he discovered in Apamada. Uh, in Thai, Thai, a lot of Thai words are extracted right from Pali. So there's a Thai word, uh, brahmat, and it means to be negligent, you know, be sloppy or careless. And so in the Sura Meriya Majapama Datana, Majapama, Pama is the word brahmat. And so it's actually in, and when he pointed that out, I was just like amazed, this little kind of gem that I'm very, I'm more familiar with that than the Pali because I know Thai quite well. And so that the, 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 the clarity of it is that that which leads to carelessness or heedlessness or um, foolishness or that we kind of lose sense of ourselves. So I'd like to spend a little time on this and just talk around it because, you know, we have, you know, full-blown drunkenness. We have uh, alcoholism that all of us have been ex uh, exposed to that in some family member or friend's family, or it's, it's not anything new. And you know, for people that have uh, addiction problems, then it, it is a serious problem. There's no uh, two ways about it. And certainly, in my, for my own uh, behavior, that it just seemed clear to me, not that I would you know, start falling all over myself and, and become a uh, a, a dead peat drunk and homeless on the street, but it's like, why, why would I want? I spent 20 years with a, a great, uh, incredible community, a, a very renowned, well-known teacher, and many of his students working on my uh, self-respect, uplifting my heart, living a, a, a good life in, in, in as, as pure as I could. And then why would I leave? And then the first thing I do is, you know, go get, I don't know, there's all sorts of terms for it, isn't there? But, you know, get drunk, drink, or whatever. It just didn't make any sense. And so I wasn't, it wasn't even a, 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 a thought, really. I wasn't attracted to that. And, and drug as well. So I made that very uh, clear. So these last 25 years has been the, has been the, uh, the standard of my, of my life. So we could we can understand for people with addiction, and that is a problem. Uh, I was recalling a, a song, I think it's an Eagle song, it might be from Hotel California, but it goes, some people drink to remember, some people drink to forget. And I see some nods out there, so Eagles or Don Henley fans as well. But it's amazing in the 60s music how many profound things are really in there and how many of our heroes from the 60s bands and stuff, Janis Joplin, Hendrix, the list goes on, of either uh, dying from uh, you know, overdose, either drug or alcohol or a combination of both. Uh, and they just played too hard, too fast, and uh, to, to their own demise. So nothing good other than the music and the profundity, but there was a, there was a chaos. There wasn't an order to it. And so here's this 2,500-year-old-plus 
teaching in a way that still has such relevance today, doesn't it, in, uh, for our lives. So the bigger question, perhaps, and a lot of you, you know, might be kind of hovering, okay, when are we going to get to like, well, what about that nice glass of wine that I enjoy with dinner, you know, with my sweetheart, with my friends, or whatever. And talking with, with Ajahn Amaro, so the first four are uh, the uh, Pagati. The fifth is, is, is in another cat, which I don't quite understand, but in some of the scriptures are presented as four, the first four, and some are presented the five, but certainly all through that the five is talked about. And, and Ajahn Amaro shared that Morris Walsh, which some of that I was reading uh, years ago because he was very uh, well uh, versed in Pali, and asked about the actual wording. And they said the wording is not about the result, but it's about the substance. So that it actually is, does mean abstinence, so to refrain from. But we have then that leads to heedlessness. So then we could ask the question, uh, each of us can ask the question, I'm sure you had, that well, an occasional glass of wine, is, what's wrong with that? And if, if it's not a problem, then I would say nothing. Um, and if you have a glass of wine and you don't become heedless, is that okay? Uh, if it's okay for you, then it's okay for me because I can't, I'm not here to judge you or to try to intimidate you that you should keep the, the, the fifth precept or the, the reasons that uh, try to you know, argue a good case for, you know, don't drink. I don't care if it's just a, a little sip, you know, or occasional beer or go down to the pub and have a pint or whatever. You have to decide that. But what, what's very, very clear is that, and Ajahn was talking about the, <clears throat> the uh, um, what was it, the Jurassic Park analogy, the, what's the, the uh, creature? The Reptile, reptilian, yeah, the reptilian uh, kind of <laughs> brain. And so the, that, you know, in the Jurassic Park, that was a great, great analogy. But it really is a is is a protector from that kind of more uh, base, coarser aspect of ourselves, you know, lurching into the world. And so, if we take then the fifth precept, and this is how I think I've always understood it, that it's very easy then for the other four to be compromised if you or I are heedless. So I think that's a way to reflect on it, to think about that. Now there's more to it than that, and I think this is a great concern because now they're they're actually in the states and maybe doing it here. They're actually making texting while driving the same offense as it is to be to be under the influence of alcohol. Uh, there's you know there's no question about about that, and so you know if you want to go out and party and you have a designated driver and and things, people do that. But I think a lot of people, and even friends, it's like, well, are you all right to drive? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. No, no problem, you know. And this, it scares me, and it's not a judgment on the people or what they've chosen to do, but think about if you did drive home and your friends, how your friends would feel, you know, if you hit and killed somebody or killed yourself. And this is not an unusual occurrence, is it, that people do this, it happens all the time. And, or heaven forbid, if you actually hit a child, um, or, or a cat, somebody's little pet cat, or a dog, or whatever. I mean, when you hit another creature like that, um, you feel it. I mean, it, 
jams right into your heart, doesn't it? Because th these are feeling, living, feeling beings. You know, when a, a cat gets run over or a dog gets run over, do you think its pain is less than the pain if it's a person? I don't think so. It just can't say I'm in pain, but it will yelp. It will go through all the motions of fighting for its life to the, to the very end. So I think it's, it, it, it kind of paints a, a bigger brushstroke. That, and that's my, my encouragement to look at that bigger brushstroke because you know, wine and, and spirits and what have you are, are very um, part of so many cultures. And uh, so I'm not, you know, people having their fun or enjoying socially or whatever, it's not for me to judge that. And I will, I'm happy to go with people. I won't go into where people are really drinking foolishly and rarely will that happen. If people want to have alcohol, whatever, I don't, you know, make any problem. It's kind of like if you're a vegetarian, you go out, you eat what's available, and they eat meat. I mean, it's very similar to that. That's that's their business. I'm not going to say, oh, you're a meat eater, or oh, you drink beer, or whatever. It's like you know, you care about these people enough. But then, who our friends are and who we hang out with, if they're the ones who do go to another extreme, then that I think is is questionable. I, I would certainly. I encourage people to question if these kind of uh, if if these people are true friends, and uh, only you can know that. And then if you are in recovery, and I have quite a few friends that are in recovery, I think it becomes very clear that uh, it is abstinence, and I think it's from from everything because anything that clouds the mind um, can be a compromise. And things can happen, even if it seems relatively innocent. And I'll find all of a sudden, you or I might find ourselves in a compromising situation. And and once the compromise, and it's it doesn't take. There's kind of a line, isn't there? And once the line is crossed, then it's kind of downhill, and or can be downhill. So, you know, to pull back or not get in the situation in in the first place is uh, is perhaps a good. Uh, uh, rule of, of, of thumb. <clears throat> so in the, the, that lead to carelessness or heedlessness, that we look at intention, we look at results of, of you know, what our intention uh, is with these, with these precepts. And uh, that uh, if we're clear about that, or we'll go out and I'll just have um, you know, one drink and then come home, um, then, you know, that's one thing. But if we have a tendency to go out at, and, uh, you know, okay, well, one more for the road. Uh, and I, I think I'm embarrassed when I think of just since I've, uh, you know, with certain situations that I've not stood up to certain people and because that's what they've chosen and things. And it's hard sometimes because people, uh, there's, it's almost embarrassing, certainly in my experience that you really say, you know, you're grounded, you ain't going nowhere. And yet, is that the kindest thing that you or I could do? And I, I think it probably is, especially if they're, you know, you get a taxi, you say, oh, we'll get your car tomorrow, whatever, I don't got any money, I'll pay for your taxi. And you send them home, the cabbie helps them get in, and then they fall on the floor and sleep there for the night and wake up the next day with a, you know, feeling horrible. <laughs> so, um, the, uh, so the, the addictive nature, there's no question, I don't think, in anybody's mind about that. But the other aspect is, is like the, the if, you know, if uh, I partake, even in an innocent way, 
will the other precepts be threatened or compromised? And only you could answer that. I mean, I don't even go there because I make it clear. I don't want to risk that. And I do have an addictive nature, for sure. You know, it's like with smoking. I love to smoke. I'd still smoke, but I can't smoke one cigarette or a pipe or whatever. Maybe when I'm old and don't care anymore, I'll have a pipe before I die. I don't know. Um, but I always loved all the f fooling around, you know, poking the pipe and poking another pipe. But I have an immediate, you know, my lungs are not in good shape, probably for all the, the, you know, I smoked enough dope in Vietnam to suck it down to my toes every night. So my lungs are still coughing and spitting and say, why did you do this to us? And I'm really upset. Um, but uh, the, uh, uh, to see it as, as, as kindness, to yourself, caring for yourself and and for others. Uh, <clears throat> and if I re recollect a lot of the situations in my own life, um, that that was definitely a, a compromised. Um, and, and concern because if somebody is, uh, especially if they're in a dangerous situation, uh, I remember one time in this place I told you about in the mountains where the Playboy store, same place that the uh, Ajahn Chah and, and uh, the uh, not so venerable Prabhakaro at that time dug out the Playboy. But not long before that, I was, a, you know, the uh, Joseph, or I was Gordy in those days. My full name is Gordon Joseph Kappel. And I grew up basically as Gordy. Not many people called me Gordon, so when I disrobed, I decided I wanted to use every, I'd always liked my middle name, Joseph. Uh, so I started using that, and Gordy seemed to be kind of long in the past. And I didn't want to keep my, didn't like want to lose my Paula name, but I wanted to you know, have another name for a new life. But uh, I remember one time being just kind of, crazy drunk, but I, I remember it, so I wasn't so drunk that I didn't know, but I was, we had a river, the river, and it, there was a lot of flooding at the time, so the river was really going fast, I mean, all this mountain snow was coming down, and I think I was almost had a, kind of like, trying to get attention, I, I think in my mind I was drunk, and then I was like, oh, I'm going to go in the water, and you know, splash my face, or whatever, and my poor father, he, he, he was respecting me, because I was a soldier at the time, to to uh, you know, but he was obviously I was making him very nervous that because if I would have gone in the water, chances are I wouldn't be talking to you here today. And so these stupid things that we can do, but uh, that uh, the blessings of our lives or whatever, and we know those that didn't have the blessing and uh, caused them to uh, to die uh, and no longer be with us in, in the physical form anyway. My. Um, Hoochmate, a uh, fellow pilot in Vietnam, he loved to drink, and he also loved to kill people. And I remember when when he would come in, and you know he'd smoke a little bit of marijuana now and then, but he really liked to like to drink. So he'd come in, and his, his face would be all red and eyes, and you know how people are when they're they're fairly intoxicated. And then he'd start boasting about the people that he killed that day. And, and you know, you should have seen it. And my last name's Kappel, so they called me Cap for sure. Oh, Cap, you should have seen him there down there. And we just like, well, I mean, I didn't want to repeat it.
But actually, not only was the alcohol affecting, but there was an addiction. Can you imagine this? An addiction to killing. And that's what can happen to, to soldiers with given the license to kill that it can go so far that they, they kind of live and thrive for that. Because it's a very powerful feeling and take it to the extreme. But he never made, he made it, he came back a you know, charred mess. He crashed and, and was burned and killed in a helicopter crash only a few weeks before he was to come home. You know, you can make a conclusion for yourself, you know, why, whatever. When your time is up, your time is up. But uh, certainly I think that's a pretty horrendous death. And uh, he certainly was doing some horrendous things. So it was beyond what I described. I mean, he was actually murdering people. He would come down and, like, uh, innocent woodcutters would actually murder them and then drink and then boast about it. And that's not a very attractive thing, is it? Um, so these are extremes, and, and extremes happen. Um, so for my practice, for your practice, and, and how we live this, is for us to, to uh, dig a little more deeply you know, in our uh, uh, intention to kind of unpack, as I, as I said, I was saying, the, you know, more in depth of what these precepts are, what they mean, and how uh, we can choose to embrace them maybe more deeply in our lives or see that how we've been keeping them and would like to keep them differently or uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But certainly from my own <clears throat> bearing witness to my own life and the, uh, the beauty that uh, it helps us to sleep better at night, um, even if you're an insomniac and still have trouble sleeping, that you're not tossing and turning because you did something maybe terribly unskillful or hurt somebody or, or whatever. And that's how, can you put a price on that? I mean, can, can you and I put a, you know, what is that worth? And uh, it's, it's, I think it's worth a tremendous amount, and it's not really, it's, a, it's priceless. It can't be put a value on, I don't think. Uh, so... I think that's about all for this evening. I didn't get to have much energy, but I managed to rise to the occasion. So thank you for your support and feeding the talk to me so I could feed it back to you. So find some meaning, and I offer this for your reflection this evening.